New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hello, everybody. I'm Jim Mandrinos. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. Today's guest is very fun for me. It's a gentleman that I go way back with in uh, 1984. We both played at a club called the Paper Moon, and we've been friends ever since. I was one of my guests for the day, Mr. Eddie Brill. All right, so this is a fun one for me, guys, because I get to bring somebody who I know since I'm 19, uh, yeah. and who knows me since I'm 19. Uh, and, and you're in my class. I count. I know you started in Boston before, but of the guys in New York City, you were one of the guys that I was running around with all the time. So, Mr. Eddie Brill is joining us and I wanted to bring him in and what I, I, I just want to start with the longevity that you've put together this this huge long career how do you keep maintaining the love of getting on stage how do you keep maintaining the energy and vigor yeah because it well it sort of does it does it for itself I mean I just love stand-up so much and uh, and it just gets better and better so I'm so drawn to the stage. I miss stand-up so much. And I'm doing so many other things in my life, comedy-wise and production-wise and uh, entertainment-wise. But when it comes down to it, I'm a stand-up. And that's my favorite thing. And so I guess the longevity comes from just the thirst for it and the love of it. So I want to talk about uh, the early days to start. Because when you started... You were one of those guys that brought all the tools to it. You were doing the cartoon voices. You were bringing the guitar on stage. You, you know, you, you brought every talent that you had with you on stage every time you performed. And when I see you more recently, it, it's those things have kind of shed off a little bit. And I know, yeah. I'm assuming in longer shows you keep doing them. But, no, I haven't. No. Not at all. You know, the only cartoon thing I've, I've ever done, is, and I brought it back as I rewrote it, was the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer bit. And as I've gotten older, I can't do all the voices that I used to be able to do, like Therese's high voice. But yeah, at the beginning, when I first had started, I was a kid in college and I thought, oh, you know, well, this is funny to me. I love cartoons and I could do the voices when I was a kid. And I didn't have really jokes for the, the voices. I just did the voices and thought, you know, that would work for me. And the guitar, I was just learning the guitar in that era I guess, well, we met in 1984. Yeah. Um, and so when the, the club Paper Moon started in July of 84. So yeah. I had not done stand-up for three or four years before the club started. I had only did it a handful of times while I was in college. Mostly in college, I was, I was in a sketch improv group. Um, did a little stand-up there, had a few terrific experiences, few horrible ones, got out. And then I started again in 84. So I had just learned to play the guitar. I knew a few chords. I, was, I thought it'd be fun to do. You know, when I was 12, I was with my friends and we were changing the words to the, you know, the songs and making them sexy or dirty. Not sexy, but sexual. You know, so it was just easy comedy for me back then. And I just needed something to drive around on stage. So the cartoons and the music um, it was a nice, it was a crutch that I could use and get laughs or get response. And, uh, and as I've gotten, I got 
I was a better performer than I was a writer. And as the years went by, the writing uh, sort of caught up a little bit. And, uh, you know, then I started taking more pride in the writing part of it and not doing the music or not doing so much of the cartoons. Let's talk a little bit about that, because when we all start, we kind of lean on our natural abilities. I was always a good writer, so I would always flood, you know, my set with as much new writing as I could. You were you were leaning on the performing. Is that a natural instinct for most comics when they start? It's either or, you know. I always think of, you know, folks like you or Brian Kiley, who were just the greatest writers, you know, Bill Broadus, uh, you know, oh. the people I knew at the beginning who were just brilliant writers. And and I also came up in a, an, er, an era where in Boston, where Lenny Clark was a, a great performer, or Jimmy Tingle was a great performer. Um, but then I also had, you know, the odd Stephen Wright, who was my college friend. He was a, a writer. And uh, who else? I was thinking of somebody else. Uh, um, uh, uh, Barry Nightkrug was a character yeah. guy. You know, I mean, and those these are all odd. There's so many... Uh, different people involved. So I think you either come up as a writer or you come up as a performer. When the two mix together, that's when you got it going. The only person I've ever seen get it go, both of them going at once, was a young Dave Chappelle, who just came out and told his truth and didn't know any better and never stopped doing that. Now, here's what I always respected most about you, because every time you would see comics who aren't as comfortable in the writing as a natural writer is, you see them shy away from it. But I saw you lean harder into it. I saw you, you would come up every time with new bits. You would come up every time tweaking stuff. You would walk off stage and you would ask the veteran performers, you know, what about that joke? How do I fix it? You know, now, is it a natural curiosity you had? Is it your, the way you study? What drove you to work like that? Well, you know, as a kid, my, my family my family was very funny. My mother was hilarious, the funniest person. And they had comedy albums around the house and they uh, would go to comedy shows. And occasionally I would, uh, I would be at a show with them that was a little cleaner. But I was very young. And I always, and, and then I heard George Carlin. And, you know, as a child, uh, I would, I was a lot of, I did a lot of wordplay. Words and letters and numbers dance in my head all the time. And I've always had that. And so, like, I would take index cards and I would make little puns, you know, where I'd draw a battery and then a shaker of salt. It would be a salt and battery. And I thought, wow, that's so funny. And, um, or I would make fun of names like Frank Furter. You know, as a child, that's the kind of stuff I did. Also, <clears throat> there was another thing I, had, like, instead of Count Dracula, it would be like, count your blessings or count, you know, it would be wordplay. So then I saw uh, George Carlin on Johnny Carson uh, touting his new album. And I just said, oh my God, this is uh, someone who, you know, thinks I think like this guy. We're in the same thinking. The more I started seeing those kind of guys and appreciating them, knowing where they came from, knowing that Lenny Bruce or Dick Cavett or these kind of guys came together. They were constantly tweaking and writing. And that's what I started to do. I wanted to tweak and write. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I never thought about that. That's a question, oddly enough, in the thousand interviews, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do, do do a lot of interviews, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 
I wanted to design this um, this podcast to talk to the younger generation of comics, which you talk to them all the time. You're one of the most oh, accessible yeah. guys. Um, but And it kind of spurred for me because when we had three losses in a row of William Stevenson, Angelo Lozado, and Vic Henley, yeah. and I was just devastated by the fact that there's a whole generation of comics that are never going to get to learn from them. Right. And when we started out, I, I remember the guys that were not just a lot more seasoned than us, but the guys that were a little more seasoned than us reaching back. I remember Lewis Black sitting me down in the bar and saying, okay, you got to fix this joke. You got a really good joke, but you, it, it's really poorly written. And just right. sitting with me and showing me things. Or Barry Berry, um, right. who's a name from our age. That yeah. basically John Mendoza taught, for me yeah. at a young age took me and and showed me how, how, to, how to work the, the material better. Yeah, so when I look and I see people reaching back and I see how much you reach back to young performers, what are the mistakes that you think the younger performers are making? Yeah, I don't think it's, I think mistakes are fantastic. I think that you need to make mistakes in order mm -hmm. to learn. So I don't think of, I don't look down at their mistakes. I think that people are not patient. You know, everyone wants everything right away. I think mm -hmm. that's the big one. I think um, what happens is, is we get in our heads and try to rationalize our thoughts instead of just letting them happen. You know, like I look at music in the same way, where I look at say Nina Simone and when she sings, it comes from the soul and it's something otherworldly that's, that's just shooting out. And then I listen to someone who has a great voice, but uh, like Celine Dion, but she's singing paint by numbers, I call it. She's getting every note in the right place and there's no outside the lines, there's no mistakes. So I think what happens is as a younger comedian, we act like our favorite comedian. At the beginning, my rhythms were very much George Carlin's rhythms because I didn't know who I was, so I was acting like a comedian. And I think all of the great comics that I know have mostly acted like a comedian. So the, your question is what mistakes do people make? I think the patience, I think that they act like a comedian. And I, I think the key really is to realize that vulnerability is strength. The more honest you are, the more powerful you are, the more audiences can relate to you. Also, and I've talked about this often, is one of the greatest stories that uh, ever, I've ever heard was the Michelangelo and David story. And people said to him, how did you make this incredible statue of David out of this block of marble? And Michelangelo said, I just cut, a, I just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him. So, you know, so that's what I've learned to do is to chip away at all the pretense and all of the things I want to be. As a, and instead, I just found out who I was. And just that, people say, how do you find your voice? Well, it's always been in there, Dorothy, the whole time. All you need to do is get rid of all the bullshit that we, like, religion and politics and your parents and not that all of all of it is bullshit but there's a lot of bullshit in those where people are advertising telling you you know you're no good and if you use my product you're going to be better got to get rid of all of that and realize we're all you know we're all human we all make mistakes and that's a beautiful thing you know an interesting thing the latin word for sin sine it it means mistake it doesn't mean, like a sin is not an evil thing that we all grew up thinking it was. It's a natural mistake. So to make a mistake is actually something you can learn from as opposed to freaking out about it. 
I, I want to talk patience because that's always been one of your hallmarks. I've seen you work bits because I work with you a lot in the city. I've seen you work bits dozens of times over the course of a week, every time changing it, every time adjusting it. Um, I think for me, when I look at the younger generation of comics, there's a lot of impatience to, I want to, I want to get this bit done and move on to the next. You were always of the mindset, I'm going to work on this bit until, until it's done, you know? Yeah, and then work on it again. Yeah. And I learned that from Robert Schimmel because he had these brilliant jokes and he'd switch them around and change them because he wanted to keep trying and working and, and crafting and creating. And that's what it was for me. And most of my life, I've wanted that. You know, there was a time in my life, and I think we'll talk about it later because you had mentioned it before we talked, when I was working at Letterman and was looking at thousands of videotapes of comedians where I stopped writing new stuff because I was just hearing thousands of comedians and all of their material. It made it hard for me. Um, and I took a step backwards in my comedy, even though I got on stage a lot, a lot, a lot, I wasn't writing as much. I'd only write new stuff when I was doing a new set on television. But back in the day, I just loved the process of doing eight shows on a Saturday and you write a joke or two during the day and in the cab, in between gigs, you're adjusting for the next gig. And then by the end of the night, you either have a new joke or you, you throw it away or you put it on the side and come back to it later and then do the work. It's fun. I mean, I, I enjoy that part of it. Now, that takes a lot of work ethic, and that also takes a lot of trust. That takes a lot of trust that at the end of the night, you're going to have that new bit. And sometimes you don't, you know, and you and I have both been working on bits, and at the end of the day, we go, eh, good try. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how long did it take you to get comfortable at knowing that that wasn't wasted effort? Um, I think it was about, it took me three years to sort of feel like I was, I, I knew what I I was doing the right thing. And I think, it, I think it took me about six years before I started getting comfortable. You know, what really helped me was going to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to Europe in I think 1989, I think it was. And I really got solidified in England in 1991 and then started working all over Europe and eventually Ireland in 97 and uh, 96 and, uh, and just traveling all over because they are wordsmiths and they are that you, one thing that we do in America often that people are used to it and accept it is pandering. You know, hey, let's hear it for the troops. Hey, give yourselves a round of applause for coming out tonight. All of these responses we're getting based on not our own material, our own talent, but based on tricks that we use or kiss-ass kind of moves. You know, we do, when I first went to England, they didn't, I went to give the guy my intro and he looked at me like, fuck you. And I was like, what? And when I got to be close with him and we started talking, he said, I thought you were bragging to me the first night about your career. And I go, I was giving you my intro. And he said, intro. He said, if you're funny, the audience is going to know it because you're going to make them laugh. But if you tell people what you've done before you go on stage, you know, I, he said, I know a lot of guys have done television. They're not great comedians. They just happen to get on television, they have a lucky break, or they know their manager knows somebody else. So having a credit doesn't give you any credence. All it does is, give, you know, it makes you, it looks like you're bragging about how good you are. Just be good and go out there. So that's where I learned a big lesson on, it was really the craft. It was really, that, that was where it was. And that's when I just shot, because now I had to do comedy for humans as opposed for New Yorkers. 
I'm working Hong Kong, I'm working in Paris, I'm working in Australia. And these are all good humans. I worked in um, Amsterdam where English is their second language and you have to slow it down so that they can, you know, figure it out before, you know, you go to the next piece. So it makes you a better comic. That's really where things happen for me. Now, let's talk a little bit about that adjustment because you do work, you know, shows with foreign, foreign speaking audiences and your material and your style of performance, you, you are off to the races. You do perform faster than most comics. Is it difficult for you to make that adjustment? Um, I learned. I learned along the way. The, the Amsterdam one where English is a second language, the first night it didn't go very well and, and at all. And I was kind of shocked because I was doing very well at that time. I had just did England and, and France and was fantastic. There's a little, I made a little three uh, country junket. And um, when I got to Amsterdam, I heard this club was amazing. And the owner sat me down and said, look, you're just going too fast. And you're not being as demonstrative as you could be. He said, like, instead of saying you're brushing your hair, say, you know, use the physicality of it because that, will help you uh, help them to understand you better. Um, and then when I was writing material for crowds in other countries, well, if you if you talk about dreams, everyone has dreams and you write a bit about dreams, it doesn't matter which country you're from, you're going to relate to it. If you talk about your situation, people will be interested if you make it funny or smart or engaging. Um, yeah, uh, I think that and, and the the other part of the other part of my growth was in the late 80s, I did well at the comedy store in Los Angeles and eventually moved pretty much into the comedy store. I was sleeping right behind the, the building and, uh, and I was there every night. So I had I went to school seven nights a week watching Pryor and Roseanne and Louis Anderson and, you know, just the greatest comics in the world going on stage. And I'd go on five nights a week. Sometimes I do three shows in a night because I was there all the time. So it's that combination of going to school, watching the greatest comics in the world work and see how that works. And it was so fascinating. And then learning from the European comics and watching how they work and listening to the response of the crowd. Now, the listening when you're on stage is very difficult when you're a young performer. You know, for, for most young comics, it's trying to remember their set. Yeah. Are there tricks that you do that lets you stay more present in your performance? That, it's that whole getting rid of all the stuff that's not me. It's not, I'm not paying, I'm in the moment every moment and each breath is a new breath. And in that one, each moment, I'm present there in that moment. Because if something, it's, it's like a symphony with the, with the audience. You're playing a note and they're laughing and it's just, you're doing a back and forth and you're, you're, it's a very fluid movement with you and the audience. And it's so important to, to do that. So you only learn that from stage time. You and I, we, we teach uh, students and we've been doing that for years. I've been involved in improv for uh, teaching for 40 years. I, 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 got, I was 1980, I was teaching kids improv. But in reality, you can't teach comedy. We've had this discussion before. Yeah, we have. You know, you can... Um, but you can workshop it, you can discuss it, you can look at the nuts and bolts of it, like we're doing right now, and yeah. go over it. And then, you know, we could tell comedians all of this stuff, young comedians, older comedians, comedians who wanna change from what they're doing, even if they're doing it 20 years, 
you could tell them, but until they do it themselves, that's that's the only until they you know because people have told me stuff, and then I find a couple of years later, like I've told comedian stuff, and two yeah. or three years later, I get an email: "You son of a bitch, you were right. I get it now." Yeah, um, you probably don't remember this, but I was gearing up for, and it was back when you were uh, handling comics on on Letterman. And I was gearing up to do another TV show for the BBC. And I uh, had written you and asked you for some advice. Do you remember this? I uh, do. And uh, you gave me a long list of advice. And I looked at that email again before this interview. Because um, mm -hmm. that long list of advice boiled down to three things. Stay yourself. Have fun. And listen. And when I auditioned for you for Letterman... You know, you were there like, okay, before I even walked on stage, same three pieces of advice. Now, you worded it much more eloquently than that. I'm boiling it down to the nuts and bolts. Okay. But it seems to me that every comic, when they have a big opportunity, starts to unpack what they do correctly for years and tries to instantly be something they're not. And every time I've heard you give advice to comics about how to do a TV set, it's always go back to what works, go back to what got you there. Are you, do you find it consistent that comics are trying to overreach in there? Well, it, people think they have to be somebody else all of a sudden. I'm gonna be on TV, I'm used to doing 30, 40 minute sets and now I have to do a four and a half minute set. Um, so the key really is, is to, you know, you think, I think of it as you, I tell comedians, look, you have an album and your album is an hour long. And now you're doing a cut from your album. So still be yourself in those three, four and a half minutes or five minutes or whatever you get for the television show and never not be yourself and take your time because it takes a moment for on television to different medium than live theater. So you're the, the only sound you're getting is from the audience that's present, but now you have this audience at home. So when I, one of the tricks is I look at the camera person and look at them and do the act for them. As the, and there, and that when every once in a while I'll look around and go, you know, I learned how to look around and involve everyone. I used to always look to the right, and I always wondered if for those right-handed, if maybe that's why. But I start learn to look around, and then I learn to work to the camera by talking to the camera person. So back to your question, is if you know people try to be something they're not. Once you do that, you've lost your authenticity. Now there's, but there's no rules really. Like if you tell Andy Kaufman that he had to be, you know, joke per minute or whatever, we would have never had the beauty of Andy Kaufman. Yeah. So, you know, it, I tell comedians, do what you do. And what you do might not be right for Letterman. It might not be right for the world stands up in England. It might not be right for this show, but don't be a different comic for that show. Be yourself and let one of those shows put you on so they can get the best of you. Tommy Tiernan's a great Irish comic, one of the best comics in the world. Mm -hmm. And he takes 12 minutes just to start off and does an hour and a half. I had, a, I had him on three times, not that I had him, but the Letterman show had him on for three times. And he was only doing four and a half minute sets. And he was crushing because we were putting sets together, make, taking the best of what he does, not cutting it down to try to make him a different kind of comic. We just did, four, we did a, a cut from his album. Now... Let's talk about that process because you've worked with literally a hundred comics, helping them pare it down. You've, 
for all those years you were there, you had to go out and do this consistently for once or twice a week. Um, and comics are terrified by this process. When I talk to comics who've done late night television for this series, everyone talks about, oh, getting it down to four and a half minutes was the hardest thing I've ever done. And yet you had to, you had to deal with not only the, the physical shaping of the set, but also the comics insecurity. How much of the obstacle is the reworking and how much of the obstacle is what's between your ears? That's a big part of it. it you're, you're, you're a kind of a psychologist when you're working with comedians. And what I, what I would tell comedians is like, I'm not giving you, I'm not doing you a favor and putting it, you earned this experience. So go out there and show everyone that, you know, what you do. Go up on stage and, and rock it like you normally do. But don't think of it like, oh, this is, a, I'm, this is bigger than who I am. No, you, you're on the show because you earned it. You work really hard. You spend a career creating, you know, this monster and bring that monster out of the bag and let it rip. And I think that helps helped a lot of people. And, you know, there, I had some joys. Like I would work with Larry Miller on his sets and we would just, it was, it was like going to school. You're there with your two students. You love the game. You love the, the whole business. You love the, everything about comedy. And we go over the jokes and we go over the words and we talk about it. And I would be a better comic after working with, with him putting a set together. But you know, the, the other part of it is on TV, you have to slow it down just a little, not a lot, not so slow. But I've learned that over the years, like if you work a venue that has 10,000 people, you can't be like talking like this really fast. You have to like have sometimes a little space and be more deliberate when you're working in that kind of size crowd. When you're doing television, if you rush, it seems like you're insecure. If you're taking your time, it seems like you're confident. And that confidence really helps you to be a better comic on television. Now, let's, uh, let's go back even further. Your first time on television, do you remember it? Um, Star Search. I did, I did other shows before Star Search. I did uh, Boston Local Cable. Mike McDonald, the great comic from Boston. Love Mike McDonald. Mike McDonald's, but Mike McDonald, who I went to college with, who had that great show uh, on uh, Boston Cable. And it really was so helpful for all of us to get early television exposure. And Lenny Clark had a show that on Channel 5 in Boston that a lot of us would do stuff. And um, so, you know, we at the beginning, I was just dancing around with a, too much energy and I was getting laughs just because I was so wild with energy. And then I got Star Search. That was my first network television show. My ticket to getting a union uh, card. <laughs> I went out to LA and I went out there and I didn't know better. I didn't really have any lessons or anything, but I had a great time. Um, looking back, I would have changed a million things, but at the time I was where I was. And uh, it was, it was a good experience. I didn't win, which was frustrating because I thought I did really well. But I decided that I wasn't going to leave L.A., where I had never been before, without doing something positive. Being on television was positive. I didn't embarrass myself. I was happy. But I went to the improv and I went to the comedy store and I auditioned with them. And that led to me start, you know, to get a lot of stage time in Los Angeles. Now, um... One of my running buddies in New York was one of your running buddies in LA, Kennison. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, we don't, and surprisingly, we don't talk much about Sam. I think we've had 
radically different experiences. I think he saw you more as a peer and saw me more as a project. And I think, uh -huh. I think uh, a lot of that was the function of age as well and also where he met us. But um, Sam kind of ruled the roost. And yeah. as someone who, who opened for him a bunch at the store and at the height of the Kennison phenomena, uh, like I had to do at the comic strip at the height of the Kennison phenomena, um, there is a certain pressure when you're opening for somebody that's known and a pressure that opening for somebody that the audience is anticipating. And when Kennison was on the show, nobody came to see Jim Adrinos. They right. came to see Sam. Um, can you talk us a little bit about being an opening act and what you have to do to prep your mindset as a performer and what you have to do for the audience to get them ready for the performer they came to see? Well, it matters where you go in the show. If you're the first comic on, you, which is the most important part of the show, you need to make everyone feel welcome. You're the person at the door grabbing the coats and welcoming everyone and letting everyone know what's going on, what they're about to enjoy. And it, it, it's very, it's one of the most important roles in all of a com and every comedy show. Um, I worked with Schimmel from so long and he was low energy, brilliant mind. And I was high energy and I told him, should I slow it down? He goes, I want you to be the highest of your energy. I want you to be yourself because that makes me take my comedy to the next level. So that's what he wanted. So I knew to do that. Um, also, I was as clean as possible because Robert was not. Um, it's not that he was dirty, he was naughty. He wasn't dirty, yeah. you know, words are not dirty. Um, Kinnison, on the other hand, he was a superstar. And we, when we went on the store, we were one of many comics. The cool part of my life is I got to sing and play music with Kinnison, which we would do on stage when oh. the show broke. That was incredible. There's so many incredible times I had with Kinnison. And he took me in. And I was very close to his brother, Kevin. And it was like family. And I had the time of my life. And I learned so much. And he treated me with respect. And he was kind of running the comedy store back in those days. And him and Mitzi took very, very good care of me. When I'd opened for Kinnison, I wasn't, I wasn't part of the tour with Alan Steven and Carla Bove. Yeah. I was, you know, those guys, they were all great, brilliant mind comics and smart and funny and wild and energetic. And Kinnison, it didn't matter because it's like, you know, you have, um, say, the, you're, you're the Rolling Stones and you have Tina Turner open for you. Well, Tina's going to blow you away and she's not going to hold back because you're the Rolling Stones. You know, so that's the, what I've learned is be yourself, stay within yourself, and also be kind of kind to the other comic by not doing the same premises or not or staying, you know, be kind is really the, the key, I think. And I think I'd like to touch a little bit on the business side of this with you too, because I think we both have interesting perspectives to share. Um, when I went out to Los Angeles and I was auditioning for the comedy store, Mitzi was notorious for getting up and walking away in the middle of somebody's audition. Um, and Sam Kennison and Rick Wright from Rick and Ruby. Yes. Uh, one sat on either side of her and said, you're going to watch him. Ah, very nice. And, and that's how I got past. Um, and I, I know that there's a lot of performers that did a lot of great things for you over the years, business-wise. Can you talk about that relationship of, of the older performers reaching back to the next generation and helping them out a bit? I've always, ha I've always been blessed. Don Gavin was very good to me and one of the best comics in the world um, was, you know, so good to me when I was a young comic. He took 
what I was doing seriously, um, even though it was kind of sophomoric at the time. But he saw something in me that gave him, you know, made him want to come up to me and say, hey, I like what you're doing. Hey, how about this? Or what do you think of this? And hey, let's grab a bite to eat. Um, you know, it's a who's who of names for me. Robert Schimmel, he was an APA uh, client, and he wrote in his contract, if I'm headlining, Eddie Brill gets first right of refusal to open for me if he wants to. And, you know, I mean, how great is that? So I would just work the best clubs in the world and work and hang out with Schimmel. Uh, Rich Hall did that for me. Not only did Rich Hall uh, take me everywhere and, and bring me to Edinburgh to work at the festival there, he put me up at his apartment when he wasn't there. John Mendoza, you know, I worked with him in uh, New York and LA and, you know, he was just so good to me and he was a very low energy guy and he loved that I had that high energy, you know. So, I mean, one comic after another, they just, I was, you know, I, I, I weirdly enough, I don't remember the original question, but I just know that it led to led me to these people who have gone out of their way to make sure that my life was great and they appreciated what I'd done, which gave me the confidence. And if, um, you know, uh, Taylor Negron, he taught me yeah. all about, he taught me all about improv. He taught, he taught me to relax and to play on stage. And uh, Stephen Wright helped me with, you know, Stephen Wright and I, our buddies from college, we're still great friends and we hang out and we laugh like school children and we have such a good time, but we think a lot alike. We have that wordplay and, and we just have such a good time. So going back and forth with that and more than anything, my mother was the funniest person I knew. So we would laugh and she was so supportive of my career and she was so funny. You had to keep up with her, which made you a better comic. Yeah, it, it just has always amazed me that comics feel we're isolated when it's a community. Oh yeah, you know, and, and and we get helped a ton. Um, comics that broke me into new markets. Comics, you know, that showed me the parts of my talent I wasn't seeing at that moment. You know, comics that. There's our ride if you want to. Yeah, <laughs> I have a feeling they're coming to reopen the comedy clubs. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, you know what? Let's shift a little bit because right now we're in the middle of a pandemic, and you perform all the time. And this has got to be probably your longest layoff. Yes, I'm going crazy. You know, I, it's hard to do stand-up on Zoom. I've done storytelling on Zoom, and I have some storytelling coming up. I did, uh, did stand-up in a way on Zoom, sort of uh, breaking down, you know, the idea of, okay, I have this joke, and this is how I came up with it, and here's how I did it, sort of deconstructing the material as opposed to performing it, mm. you know? And, uh, but it's not the same, no. not the same. I miss that, I miss, I, you know, it's been middle of March is the last time I was on stage. The second weekend of March, I was working and uh, then I wasn't. And uh, it's driving me a little crazy, uh, I'm going nuts. <laughs> uh, now, since we're, we're here and talking about it, do you think stand-up's gonna come back? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's one of the things that I hear from the young performers. Immediately when the pandemic hit, I got so many emails saying, oh my God, you know, I found the one thing I love and it's never coming back. You and I kind of lived through a lot of waves of 
stand-up's never coming back, but it came back. Like the AIDS yeah. epidemic, and clubs got empty, and right. then it came back. And then after 9-11, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, what is it that you think keeps stand-up viable as an art form? Um, because of its honesty and its strength of, through vulnerability, I think those are the keys. You know, I've had some conversation with people, and they go, ah, vulnerability, what's that? It's everything. It's really the, it's really the foundation. Because, you know, it's not, comp if you're, I know a lot of comics who everybody sucks but them, that kind of uh, thing. And that's not compelling. You know, it's funny for four or five minutes, possibly, but it's got to come back to bite you in the ass. It's, I always think of Schimmel's joke where he says, you know, I asked my wife if I can go in the other way. And she pulled out her vibrator and said, let me do you first. And the reason why I, I love that joke as an example is because he's acting all macho and he's so cool and... I'm going to be in charge. I'm the man. And she put him in his place where we all belong. We all are nerds. We're all, we pretend we're cool. Maybe Johnny Depp is <laughs> cool all the time. But most of us are nerds, especially comedians. And we're writers. We're, you know, we're, a lot of us are, not all of us are depressed, but some are, have depression. We have up and downs that are crazy. But I think of it like an EKG machine. If it's up and down, you're alive. Um, the, and if you're not, if you just stay safe, you're, you're flatlining. Um, so yeah, so I think that, um, again, the, the original question, you know, threw me off, but, uh, and I went off on a tangent and that, that's okay. The tangents are what's make, what makes this interesting. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll keep rolling us back to where we need to be. Right. Okay. Let's, um, let's talk about your process. How do you write and develop new material? All, all different ways. I, I do a lot of, what I do is I'll just write all the time and I'll come up with, like, for instance, there's, you know, the pandemic. So what, what, what is interesting about the pandemic? Well, the interesting thing is I'm alone. I live by myself. I'm not having sex with people, maybe with one person myself. So without making it filthy by making it silly. And I say filthy, but I mean, and that's a very bad choice of words without making it too obvious, like talking about masturbation, which freaks people out the word. I said, you know, I haven't pleasured myself in a few days. Was it something I said? And the reason how that becomes funny, it's that you're not making fun of the pandemic, you're making fun of yourself forced in this situation. And how I learned to do that was listening to the Monty Python guys talk about life of Brian. Because they were talking about, they were getting all this shit from the local clergy in England who hadn't even seen the movie said it's sacrilegious and all this you're making fun of jesus and they said we're never made fun of jesus in that movie jesus was on the mount and he was word for word doing the speech that he did on the mount but the people around him the morons they were the funny people like yeah. Colin quinn had after 9 11 the first comic on letterman with a joke about the sort of scenario he never made fun of 9 11 it was, you know, something we had to go through to, to make sure that we could joke about it. He said, and again, it's not word for word, but he had the tune of like, if you've been down to the World Trade Center and were there that day, you know, we want to hear your story. But if you weren't, we're not interested in your, you know, yeah. supposition. Like if you said, well, you know, if I took the two train, I would be down there. And he said, well, do you take the two? And they go, not really. Well, that's like saying, I would be a business banker, investment banker, if I wasn't working the rides at Rye Playland. So yeah. it was funny because Colin, in a very dark situation, took, made fun of the surroundings. 
And yeah. so I learned a lot about how to write that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'll also do a lot of wordplay. Like I have that bit that I've done for a million years about the, the animals and the similes. And what I did was I wrote, I took a list and I made 74, you know, animals. And then I found the little quotes and then I knocked it down to 17. I found the rhythm. And that was very, I learned from watching George Carlin instinctually I knew how to do that. Here I have all this stuff here. You know, I'm just writing. I have my yellow pad and here's some material I've been writing and working on. And, you know, just trying to uh, talk about the letter X and, and how it, you know, has so many different meanings for it. It's the cross, it's, you know, Christ, uh, it's Christmas. It's, you know, the, and I, so I wrote all these different examples down. So sometimes I'm writing stuff down. Sometimes I'm on stage and I, I'm just playing. Like, I've been doing a lot of storytelling in my comedy and really enjoying that. And then coming up with material from that. Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier about masturbation, people, you hear the word, people freak out. Well, if they're going to freak out, my material that I was doing before the pandemic hit was about how people freak out at masturbation and how people think of it as a negative thing and how that word throws people off because it really does. So the more I talked about it, the more material came out of it and the more the audiences loosened up and laughed. It was a nervous laughter because they're hearing stuff that does make them a little uncomfortable. Now, how long would you go back and revise older stuff? Occasionally. Occasionally. I'll go back just out of, out of the stuff I learned from Schimmel. Just take your joke and put a new punchline on it. Throw something else in there. Rearrange the joke. Try some, you know, Roy Wood Jr. taught me a lot when I was on the road with him. He was a much younger comic than I was. We were working that great club in, um, uh, we're in uh, Kentucky. It was... Uh, Oh, I can't think of the name of the club. It was a comedy off Broadway in Lexington. Ah. And, you know, I had all this new material about religion and I was really excited about it. And it wasn't sacrilegious and it was very respectful, yet I thought funny. And I would close with it. And I do all this safe stuff up front and then end with the stuff that's a little more risky. Roy told me, open with that, the ending. Let's do that tomorrow night. Let's open with our closers and end with our openers. And I did my set all the way backwards. And I thought, oh, they're going to hate me right away. I'm in the South and I'm talking about religion. And it was just as good. So, you know, I just learned to play. Yeah. Now, let's, um, let's talk about a couple of things that you do especially well. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I touch my face all the time. <laughs> I'm the worst pandemic guy in the world. Well, as long as you're in your own house by yourself, I think it's I'm okay. Myself. Yes, I'm okay. One of the things I love about watching you is you do you do keep it clean in terms of language, but every once in a while, when it's absolutely appropriate, you will drop a curse. But unlike other performers who are using it almost like it's a comma, it's structured for impact. Yes. Is that a choice? Is that? Yeah, because, you know, there was a joke that uh, someone had brought up years ago, and it's, I'm pulling out of my driveway and a guy cuts me off and I go, hey, buddy. And the guy goes, fuck you. And I go, oh, sorry, father. And why that joke to me was funny is because you don't expect the priest to say fuck you. And you're not saying fuck you, the priest is saying. So I learned how to do that to make it about other people saying it as opposed to me saying it. Like if I was saying, you know, I'm fucking walking down the fucking street, it's lazy. Unless that's who I was. If that's the kind of person I am and the way I talk and it's natural, 
but it, you lose the effect of this incredible word, this powerful word. Now, every once in a while, when I, I'm insecure on stage, I'll curse more than I should. People say, that's the dirtiest I've ever seen you. I go, yeah, I, I, thanks for telling me because I wasn't paying attention. I was just so nervous about this new material instead of just being my normal self and, you know, a bull in a china shop with the material. Now, do you plan your sets before you go up or do you go up and what happens, happens? I plan the opening usually. And even then when I get on stage, that could change. Matters who was on before me. You know, Mark Norman, one of the great comics, younger comics, he always comes up and does a joke about that relates to something that happened in the set before him, which is an incredible talent. Um, so sometimes I do that, but I try to sort of plan the opener. I used to plan the, the closer and, you know, because that's an interesting way to write when you write or when you do math or, you know, a complex math, you, you know, the what's X, you, you, you know, the ending and you figure out what X is later, you know, you go backwards. So, but I've also just said, look, I'm going to come out and do this and then see what the audience is like, you know, judge them quickly, or at least understand them instead of not judge them, but understand them quickly and then take it from there. Show confidence, you know, and sometimes too much confidence works against you. Like I uh, was talking about this recently where I've gone on stage and I'm a little arrogant because I came from a show before this that they weren't at where I was doing really well. And I expect them to go, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're great. No, that you're, you have to start from scratch at the beginning of every set. Unless you're really famous. If you're really famous, yeah. you'll, you'll get a laugh at just like good evening. There's a bell curve when you got a little bit of fame. Yeah. Um, you're also one of those guys like me that isn't afraid to perform on any gig. You know, yeah. I, I've seen you in little dive bars in the middle of the village. I love them. Yeah, with like 10 people. And we've also worked theaters together. Yeah. You know, larger venues with, with audiences. How Which much I love do you, the most. <laughs> yeah. Are theaters your favorite? Um, the theater, a theater is my favorite. Even if it's 250 seats, they're all facing forward. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, there's no waitress service or waiter service. And it's just, you know, it's a better format for comedy. That's why the Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley, California. Is one oh, of my favorite, beautiful venue. You know, yeah. places to work in the world. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of like theaters. But, you know, I, I love working Dangerfields to 20 people on a Saturday, you know, late show and try to get this crowd that's maybe a little drunk and get them to focus and pay attention and have fun. Those are harder jobs to do, but it's more rewarding when you get them to laugh. Now, I found for me personally as a comic, I have to adjust to the venue. I, I have to approach theaters differently than I would approach a country club and differently than I would approach, you know, a 10 seat bar. You know, are you approaching them differently or do you just internalize and do what you do? I approach them differently. I remember the in LA in 1987, I got to do the Shrine Auditorium, 8,800 seats. I didn't know I was doing the Shrine Auditorium. I thought I was working for the Shriners. I misheard. So I thought it was a little party with about 25 men in hats. Uh, it was 8,800 people. I'm following Jimmy Stewart, you know, mm. on stage. It was the most, the most incredible gig of my life. And I, uh, I was about to go on. I'd never worked to that many people, never worked to more than I think. I worked to 600 a couple of times when I did hilarities in Cleveland, the old building. Yeah. But I normally only worked to 200, 175. That was the big, big crowds for me. 8,800 was crazy. 
Vic Dunlop was was sort of emceeing the event off stage, like talking into the mic, going, and now, ladies and gentlemen, you've seen him in, you know, this and that. Here's Jerry Lee Lewis. And, you know, it was all these kind of people. And uh, so I go on, just before I go on, I say, hey, Vic, it's so good to see you, because I didn't know anyone else there. And he said, look, here's my advice to you. Go out there and be deliberate. Take your time. And that's what we were talking about that earlier. And I learned to work a bigger venue, a little bit more deliberate. Uh, Colin Quinn and I and Rick Keller got to do um, Louisiana Tech. And Rick went on and he had a really great set. And then I, before I went on, the mic went out. And they didn't have a backup mic. And it's, I think, an 1800-seat theater. So I learned to be able to talk and use my diaphragm. And then, of course, Colin did the same thing. We, we both were able to pull it off despite not having a mic. Because you can't, when you have a mic and you get a big laugh, you can talk over that laugh when you need to. But in this yeah. scenario, if you try to talk over the, they can't hear you. And if you try to talk over the laugh, they'll stop laughing because they want to hear you. You got to give them the chance, the ability to laugh. And I learned that from Margaret Smith when I was working the comedy trap in Buffalo. She said, you're talk so fast that you're doing 40 minutes material in 20 minutes. Take your time, slow it down, have a conversation. And that was a, a great advice for me. Uh, I want to um, I want to touch on developmental years because you and I did, um, yeah. Again, like you said, you did it for a few years in Boston, then stopped, and then came back in '84. And we were working together at Paper Moon. A friend of yours started Paper Moon, which eventually you took over the booking for. And uh, he Joe brought Mauricio. in a what's that? Joe Mauricio. Joe Mauricio. Who I went to Emerson with, and he he was working there. Ah. And uh, he brought in um, me, Colin Quinn, Mario Cantone. Uh, he brought in you, um, and I remember the four of us actually handing out flyers in the village uh, for stage time. That's, that's how young we were. But he would also bring in more, more veteran performers than us. Yeah. While, while we were a lot of times the bulk of the show, he would also bring in, you know, guys to headline the room. And I remember distinctly, you know, standing in the back of the room with you three guys and all of us absorbing all of the veteran comics like sponges. How yeah. important is it for the young comics to watch the guys that know what they're doing? Oh yeah, I mean, nowadays I don't like to watch that much comedy because I've watched so much of it in my life. I wanna create and if I hear other people do it, it's like, oh damn, what a great idea, what a great premise, all that kind of thing. Um, but it's important, I, I believe in my life, it changed my life watching these masters, watching Rich Jenny, watching Maria Bamford, and, and the, the biggest lesson I've ever learned was watching Paula Poundstone. There's nobody better on the planet working a crowd than Paula Poundstone. Yeah. And the fact that she's not the most world famous comedian ever is a crime against humanity. Um, I did a weekend with her in, at the other cafe in San Francisco, and I became a different comedian because of it. So watching the other comedians and watching them and understanding what they're doing and, and uh, you know, breaking it down and, and figuring it out. Very, very important. Uh, for me, one of the watershed moments was going in 86 to the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco. And uh, I had actually gotten booked by Will Durst and I had never seen Will Durst on stage. Mm. And I'm working the weekend with Will Durst and just sitting for the five show weekend at the Holy City Zoo watching Will Durst and just sitting there going, 
I'm not a good writer. <laughs> that's a good writer. You know, yeah. I got work to do. I think you know, I, I booked Tony V at the Paper Moon. <laughs> I, he brought in Bob Goldthwait, who we all knew from Boston. He'd come from Syracuse and moved to Boston. And uh, he went on stage and he was so brilliant that I actually said, you know what? I think I'm going to quit. I really do. Because I could never be that good. Mm. And I think that, you know what? I should, because I was booking the shows and promoting, I thought, you know what? Maybe I should do this or something else because I'll never be as great as Bob Goldthwait, as smart and as funny and as one of a kind as he was. I'm glad I didn't quit, but I really thought of, of quitting because I thought, you know, th this is what it's about. I'm not, I'm, you know, this is not, I'm not this good. I'll never be this good, I thought. Yeah, and all those years later, you know, there are people that are watching you saying the same thing. I don't know about that, but. Oh, trust, a little trust, my friend. Yeah. Um, a couple more things, and, and then I, I, I will let you have because you're being unbelievably generous with your time. That's uh, okay. It's me and you hanging out. <laughs> it, it's a it's lot of years. We love comedy. Yeah, the only thing that's different is we're not doing it over a slice of pizza on Bleecker Street. Uh, that's very true. Yeah, because that's. Yeah, it should be a slice of pizza on Bleecker Street. Yeah. Um, how important is it to have a peer group and people that you're running around with when you start? Um, I think. One of the things that college is great for is that you're put in a situation where everyone's 18 to 21 or 18 to 22 or whatever, and you get to work, you get to live life among your peers and see where you fit in and where you don't fit in. And I think in comedy, it's that same sort of thing. You get there, you work with your peers, you see the people who dedicate themselves, what they do, and also you have someone to talk to. Oh, my, I did the set and this happened and blah, 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 and they'll calm you down and go, hey, come on over and well, let's go get a pizza on Bleecker Street and, and talk about it. So I think it's, you know, incredibly important. But at the same time, you know, you could be a loner and just be a genius, like a rich Jenny. I don't think of him as a loner, but I think of him as a genius, a writer. Yeah. And, you know, just write, write. I got to write with him for, uh, when he was hosting Caroline's Comedy Hour. And mm. that was, oh my God, what a pleasure. And, uh, but anyway, you know, I think there's all different kinds, you know, and there's all different kinds of comics, you know, you have um, character comics like Gilbert Gottfried and Maria Bamford and Richard Lewis and, you know, on and on. And they're writing differently. There's, you know, Emo Phillips is quite a character, but it's one of the most brilliant writers in the history of, you know, pen and paper. Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, so, yeah, I think that it's important. The peer group is, is a very good, you know, we've been playing poker at my apartment since for 25 years, 24 years. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's the, the guest list of people that from all over the world that have sat at the table and played um, are just some of the greatest comics in the world. And we're loose with each other and talking about the business a little bit, having fun playing. That's really made a difference in how a lot of us got to know each other. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about overcoming the hard times because there are, there are moments in this business where you are the flavor of the month yeah. and everyone's trying to, you know, get you on their roster. And then there are those moments where people aren't returning your calls yeah. and it's really cyclical and guys like you and I have been around for a long time, know it's cyclical, but when it first happens, when you go from flavor of the month to why isn't anyone returning my call, it's devastating. How do you work through that? How do you? You just got to believe in yourself and you got to understand that, you know, that everything is cyclical. Um, and 
you know, if you, if you flame out too quickly, you can flame out too quickly if you're just on this spark plug without doing the work, the writing and all the other stuff. So if you continue to do the writing and you continue to do the work and the footwork and, and still get out there and, 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 you know, do a guest set at the other cafe or do a guest set in, in London or do this, it brings you, it just keeps you working and it forces you to just be better at what you do. Because in reality, the cyclicalness of it is based on other people's, you know, um, idea of what is good and what isn't good. You know, a lot of people, there's a lot of ageism, as you and I know, I'm 61, you're younger than me. There's a lot of ageism, but I've never been better as a comic. I mean, the comic I was when I was 25 and 26, you know, it was fun and it was good. And when I was 35 and 40 and tearing up the comedy store and having time in my life, it, I was pretty good. But I've never been as good as I am now, you know, and I, I don't say it as a brag, as, a, as the work I put in has paid off in a sense where I'm having the time of my life and I'm taking it to another level that I've never taken it before. So instead of worrying about ageism, you create for yourself. And that's why I started producing and, and booking and, you know, uh, I've always, you know, I've always been a caretaker my whole life. I've always taken, you know, my family were very poor. My stepfather died really young and I was the oldest of five. And at 15 years old, I was forced to raise the family. And it, and I loved it. And I loved that responsibility of taking care and being the caretaker. And in my life, you know, when Mauricio contacted, Joe Mauricio contacted me about the Paper Moon, we actually started it together at the beginning. But I really loved when I was able to, to take it and run with it and do what I, the vision I had for it. You know, the same thing with the Great American Comedy Festival. They had a whole different idea from what it, it was going to be this, you know, amateur competition with 60 comics going up there, making their own way. And I ended up bringing the best comics on the planet into this middle of, you know, middle of bar, uh, uh, cornfields. And uh, of course, you know, wonderful people. Um, but we brought in the best of the best and took care of them, paid them, flew them in, put them up and treated them like they deserve to be treated. So, you know, all throughout the whole time, I've learned to be caretakers for other comics. When I would book Letterman, I would audition, I would, you know, instead of saying, send me your tape, I would go on, I'm on the road every weekend, doing a gig in Denver and in Austin and Minneapolis and in London. And I'd set up a showcase at the end of the week and I'd watch 10 comics and I'd take notes, extensive notes. And at the end of the night, instead of running off, I would stay with the comedians who wanted to see what my notes were. Not, you know, I made a mistake because I thought it, that's what I would have wanted. And not every yeah. comic wanted the notes, but, uh, but the ones who did, actually I know have gone on to do really great things because they loved the business and wanted to learn more about it. Well, one of the hardest things is you, were, you had to say no to peers. Yeah. And I don't think people gave you enough credit for that because that's not easy. I know I had to say no to 99.9% .9 of the people. That's almost everybody. I had to say no to some of my favorite comedians. I had to say no to some of my best friends, not because it, because it wasn't the Eddie Brill show. So there were comics I wanted on and I fought for it. And I, yeah. I was told no. And you know what? There's part of me that wishes I didn't have that in my life because I wish I could have just been a comedian during those 17 years, working, 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 and being a better comic and would have had a different career. But at the same time, 
I was part of one of the greatest TV shows in the history of the world and helped to shape it in some way. And that to me, no one can take that away from me. No, they can't. But one final question and then I will, uh, I will find out where people can find you. But before that, what do you know now, all these years later in the business that you wish you would have walked into the business knowing? Most of the things we talked about, you know, about patience, well, you know, making vulnerability your strength, getting rid of all the bullshit that's not you, um, not taking, there's a great book called The Four Agreements. I don't know if you've ever read it, yep. and it's so great. And one of the agreements is not to take things personally. It's, you know, because uh, it's other people projecting their fears onto you. And I wish I would have known that back in the day. Um, uh, because that really was huge and not to make assumptions. And I've, I've learned a lot about life. And I also realized, look, I said my age, I'm 61, but I have so many things coming up. I have so many irons in the fire right now. I'm not, I'm not slowing down. I'm, you know, once we get back on stage, I'm back on stage. But in the meantime, you know, after I've done here, I got, there's a gig I've been booking for like 20 years because it was supposedly through John Stewart and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, Louis Black, who we talked about before, they were working the Daily Show, and it's this gig, and they called me about let's let's do some more work, and we were supposed to do it in July, and they've moved it to September. I'm not stopping, you know. I'm doing, you know, it, it, I love this so much, and you know, I hope that people who do it like we have been doing it love it as much and put the effort into it. And it shows. If you're loving what you do on stage, you might even be mediocre. I know a lot of mediocre material comics who love what they do, and I love them for it. And audiences adore them for it. Yep. So, Eddie, where can people find you? Where can people okay. find out what you're doing? Um, my uh, Facebook, unfortunately, is pretty filled up. But it, you, you can always write to me there if you want, if that's easiest. But Eddie Comic at uh, Instagram. Eddie underscore Brill at Twitter. And uh, I think, you know, there's other, I have a website and I'm actually, after that other call I make, I'm, I have a new person taking over my website because it's under construction. It's eddiebrill.com, but you know, the other thing that I want to mention as I'm, I'm hosting this incredible podcast called OG Talk, OG Organic Grill. It's in the ah. East Village. I've gotten Colin to do it and Artie Lang and all superstars, Bobby Ojeda of the Mets, Cindy Shu of CBS News, John Joseph of the Cro-Mags. It's rock and rollers, comics, all talking about passion and compassion. You go to OG Talk on YouTube and you'll, there's at least 25 interviews on there that I'm very proud of. Well, good. We will put a hyperlink from RSA to yours. Wonderful. Eddie, thank you so much for spending time. I love time. you, brother James. Uh, I can't wait to see you in person. I need a hug. Okay. We right. had two of us together. The last time we had a hug is when we did that show for Jody Wiener. Yes. Yeah. Yes, up at Albany. It's been yeah. too long since we've been in the same room. I know. I know. Apparently, we've turned into Highlander. They can only have one of us on the show at a time. <laughs> I'm talk. proud to be a Highlander with you, my friend. All right. We will talk to you soon. Thanks, Eddie. All right, brother. Love you. Love you, too. Bye-bye. So that was a really fun conversation for me. Eddie and I go way back. Um, for 35 years and he's still going strong. He's not slowing down. And that's the truth about performers. We don't stop, we just keep going. And that's why you need the foundation. That's why you need to learn as much as you can when you're starting out so that when you're doing this 35 years, you're growing and you're still producing. And Eddie is.
Now that's all for this week's episode. We're going to be back again next week with another great guest. This has been such a joy to bring this to you. And until next time, this is the Comedy Legacy Series. Bye, everybody. Worldwide Production.